Well, good morning. Well, Pastor Hayden and his family are wrapping up their vacation, so of course be praying that they would come back rested and energized, ready to come back and serve. Well, I want to make him proud as we wrap up our sermon series on Dear Church, where we talked about our mission as a church to make, uh, make disciples. So, here we go. Week number three, we exist here as Compass Bible Church to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ, and train people to serve Christ. And everything that we do here, including the sermon, is to fulfill that mission to, to make disciples. Now, this isn't something that we went away on a business retreat and, and came up on ourselves. No, this is based on Scripture, primarily on Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, which Jesus says to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all my commands, and I will be with you to the end of the age. Now, the imperative in that text, the command from Jesus to his disciples, and really to his disciples' disciples, which is you and me. So this same command is not only given to the 12, but given well, actually, to the 11 at the time, uh, but also to you and I to do this, make disciples. Make a disciple is a follower. To follow who? Follow Jesus. So that's, that's the command there in the text, Matthew 28. So where do we get reached, and where do we get teach, and where do we get trained? Well, we reach people for Christ, we evangelize to the lost, because the discipling actually does, can happen before they're saved, because discipleship looks like you evangelizing, so we evangelize to the lost, which culminates into what you know, symbol? Baptism. And so baptizing them is where we get the word reach. We teach, thankfully it's a little easier, it's teaching all I've commanded, so that's, that's nice. But where do we get trained? Where do we get trained? It's the word Go. Some might say go is the imperative of Matthew 28. No, that's just, it's not. Making disciples is. Go is saying, you need to get out there. I've trained you, now go. That's why we get the training people to serve Christ. We need to go out there. We need to be trained, and we need to train others so that as we are being sent out, we are also sending other people out. So really, this job of discipleship involves all of us. We are all to reach. We are all to teach, and we're all to train. Now, thankfully, God has given us instructions and structure there. But just know that as we, we talk about reaching, teaching, training, our mission as a church, just know that this involves you and me. It involves every single believer here. And so with that, we have to understand that we've been entrusted with something very, very precious that we need, to, we need to take hold of and guard and pass on faithfully. It's like someone who received an inheritance. They didn't work for it at all, but it's something that's very valuable and they're there to then take that and use it well. But sometimes we get stories, like in Yahoo Finance, of people who have inherited a great amount of wealth and just squander it. Uh, like, like this gentleman at age 26, this particular gentleman, I don't want to say his name, that would be mean, I don't know who this person is, but I digress. This person at age 26 received $750,000, like that. Didn't earn it. But his great aunt passed and decided, no, I'm going to give my great nephew a nice little inheritance. And I'm like, who is my great aunt? <laughs> and already we we're kind of thinking about, okay, what if I had, you're already thinking, if I received that at you know, age 26, even now, like, what, what could I do? Maybe I can finally get out of that, you know, my debt, you know, school debt, my student loans. Maybe I can finally pay off my car and be, be done with it, or I like, get a new car, right? That's what I need. 
Maybe I can pay off my house or buy a new house in cash. That would be really nice. Because we understand the value of $750,000 is a lot of money. And it needs to be treated with respect and such. But this person didn't. And when we hear about this, we, we groan, we roll our eyes, and we go, are you kidding? Like this young man, when he got it, he immediately quit his job. All right, already not, not a good choice there. And then instead, it went on expensive vacations, bought fine art pieces, which at age 26, I guess he has good taste in art. But then he just lived a lifestyle that kind of just slowly you know, trickled away. But as you know, that trickling builds into a quick drain of his lifestyle of, of partying and drugs, finally get a hold of him, where at one point he inherited $750,000, which I will never probably make that in my whole life. And yet he had that, and then ended up in just no, in a short time, ended up in debt. He had this money and somehow spent not just all of it, but more than he had, and ended up in debt. And the irony is that he had to get a job to pay off his debt. But we look at that person and go, you had something precious. What on earth are you doing? But Christians, we have something much more precious than $750,000. We have something more precious than $750 billion. We have the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can say amen, but think about it. Meditate on that. Consider this truth that the the thing that the world desperately wants, it it wants world peace. It wants peace. It wants rest. It wants the end of disease. It wants the end of death. It wants life. It wants hard people to change. The only solution is the gospel. The gospel is what brings peace. The gospel is what eliminates sickness and death. It is something that will give new life. It is absolutely precious. Now, this gospel clarified, I mean, throughout Scripture, but I like the outline Paul gives in Romans chapter 3. We have to understand what the gospel, gospel means good news. This good news that we are entrusted with is simply, you know, this. I mean, Romans is a great book, especially the first half, kind of explains what the good news is. Essentially, the, the, we have to start, in order to get the good, we have to understand the bad. As someone put it, as our student ministry heard, if you saw someone, you saw their x-rays, and you realized they're, even though they look healthy, they had cancer, and you handed them the cure right away without telling them the bad news that they have cancer, they're never going to take the cure. They're going to go, what are you doing? I'm healthy. We have to say, no, no, you have cancer. It's going to kill you. Here's the cure. And they're going to snatch it up and drink it. We have to sit in the bad news a little bit. As Romans 3 talks about, we are all utterly sinful. As it says pretty boldly, there is no one good. No, not one. Maybe lateral comparison. We might be nicer than the next person. We might be able to do a little bit more good deeds than the other person. But really, deep down, we look at our hearts. We look at our minds. And we recognize we are not good according to the standard of good. And what, what, is, what is that standard of good? It's what I think. Is what a culture thinks. No, it's what God thinks. Because he is perfectly good. He created you and me in his image. Saying us, we need to reflect his image properly. The problem is, Adam and Eve didn't, and his, their descendants, you and I, didn't do it either. We are utterly sinful, and furthermore, we're utterly condemned. We're guilty of sinning against a good God who gave us life. Whose rules, I mean, if the world stopped murdering, that'd be a probably good thing. If the world stopped stealing, it'd probably be a very good thing. His rules aren't burdensome. It's only burdensome for a heart that is not for him. 
And Romans clearly is out. It's not only we're, we're, we're sinful, we're guilty, and we're dead. We can't do what God commands us to do if we like it or not. We can try, 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 but eventually we'll fail. It's, it's hopeless. It really, it's a hopeless picture, and it needs to be hopeless. Because that's the picture that God is trying to say. Here's reality. We're in a hopeless state, dot, 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 without God. And that's the solution is God. God is the solution. The Father planned, the Son executed, and the Spirit seals. What? What exactly? That Jesus, the God, the eternal Son, God himself came down in human flesh to live that perfect life that you and I can never live, never sin against God, never sin against his fellow image bearers. Never sin. And he could have walked and come down and gone right back up. No problem. We come, you know, we're born and we go down. He said, I'm going to take care of this problem. So I going to take the death that you and I deserve, the wrath of God, on in your place. Even though I don't deserve it, you deserve it, I'm going to do it. So that you can live and be with me in eternity. The only thing that Jesus calls us to do is laid out perfectly in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. To believe means I need to turn. I need to repent from my life and turn to the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. And that alone saves. So I don't need to bring anything. All I do is I bring my sin and I leave it at Jesus and I keep walking. Because it's no longer me who's walking anymore. It's now God in me who's helping me walk because I trusted in Christ to save me. I give new life knowing that I have God indwelling in me. And that God will carry me through and help me persevere into eternal life that he's going to bring. And it's going to be sweet, sweet, sweet. That is good news. That is precious. The problem is the enemy wants to twist it. He wants to hide the bad news saying, you're good enough. You're fine. He wants to say, well, you you need to add a little bit of things. You need to add some works there. Or you you don't need to repent at all. You just need to have some mental, I need to twist some of the good news. And now I need to discourage you from the eternal home that you're going to have. I don't try to make you focus only on your home here. So you understand we have to take this and make sure it's guarded well. Make sure we don't squander this inheritance that we did not earn. Christ did. And he's given us freely. And so we as Christians have to understand we are in danger to squander the inheritance that was given to us that we did not earn. That's so much more valuable than a few thousand dollars. Instead, we need to take heed the words that Paul, that will God through Paul gave to Timothy, and then trusting this truth to make disciples, as was read to us just now. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we wrap up this sermon series. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Let's just read the first verse together. Paul says, You then, my child. This is like a term of endearment. This is like Paul to his son, but really it's not really his biological son, but it's a son through the blood of Christ. He's like, I, I just love you, Timothy, my child. So he's giving this, next thing is they say, as a father to his son, to encourage his child, I want to say this, be strengthened. In other words, be empowered. Well, why does Timothy need to be strengthened? Why does he need to be empowered, really? Because Paul understands, and Timothy understands, is now as a young pastor in Ephesus, that he's at war. 
we understand that we are in a nice, peaceful place called Texas. We're in an air conditioning building. We have to understand that we are actively at war. Not with tanks or guns. No. It's against Satan and his allies, who even right now are trying to bombard me, trying to bombard you, and trying to pull you this way and that. We are at war, and we need to rely on a strength that's greater than our own to fight. And hence why he says later in verse 1, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That grace means favor, that favor in Christ Jesus. So we need to be strengthened by something that is not our own. It's the favor of God. But again, this is nothing new. That's why Paul tells the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And you know the next words. Put on the whole armor of yourself, your smarts, your finances, your body armor. No, of God. You and I need God to be saved, to be sanctified, and to be brought into his kingdom. We need God to fight. And the good news is, is that we get to put on his armor. That's some. That's awesome. And the imagery is nothing new. Paul is just referring back to Isaiah 59, talking about how God puts on his armor to fight and win. And we get to put on that same armor to fight and win, but we need to be strengthened by something that's greater than our own, the grace of Christ Jesus. And even there, the grace in Christ Jesus means it's just that presence of Christ, knowing that Christ is with us. As we put on his armor, he is with us. Not just cheering next to us, he is in us. But God's presence to motivate us to fight is, again, nothing new to the New Testament. Think of Moses in Exodus 3. He is about to be sent into Egypt to, you know, you know, to go free the slaves. You realize that's an act of war against Egypt. And to think of it, it's like someone coming here to the United States, the superpower of our era, saying, you need to free our people. And so he's going to Egypt, the superpower of its day, and Moses is saying, I'm here to fight you. But really, it's God that's going to fight you. But before he sends him out, God says this to Moses, I will be with you. Next is Joshua, as he's about to go in and fight, to go and conquer the land that was promised to them by God, saying, hey, there's a bunch of Wicked people that I have shown mercy for 400 years, now that I'm going to use you to exact justice on, and it's going to be a hard fight. It's going to get scary, but this is what we need to remember, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Why can't I be strong and courageous and not be frightened and dismayed? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't that comforting? And then David gives that same comforting words to Solomon. At the end of his life, in 2 Chronicles 28, he says, Solomon... Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. God is with you. But you notice where it's God is with you and I will be with you. That's why it's important. The Matthew 28, the same commission to reach, teach, train, to make disciples is this. That Jesus is with us. I will be with you. Recognize this comfort. Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is claiming to be God. As the echoes of the Old Testament are pointing toward the new, he's saying, I am that fulfillment. I will be with you. And so Paul gives Timothy that reminder. Say, hey, there's a fight 
You're going to have to persevere. It's going to be hard. It's going to take up your whole life. But persevere in the grace that is in Christ Jesus because God is with you. And that's our first point point to this, this morning is to turn to Christ for perseverance. Turn to Christ for perseverance. Because as a church, it's kind of the, the main point, you, you see it on your worksheet, is that we need to prioritize the hard labor of discipleship so we can faithfully entrust others to carry on the pure gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations and to the generations to come. So the first thing we need to do is like we need to not turn to our own strength, we need to turn to Christ. In my younger days, which turns out not to be too long ago, depending who you talk to, I used to be really into mountaineering. And I was in the Andes in South America, climbing a mountain called Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, that trip was a 21-day trip uh, up. Then there was down. But on the way up, it was hard. But summer day, it was rough. I I can't remember the hours because, again, it was that rough. It was probably an 18-hour day walking on incline. And I just remembered how tired I was towards the end. I didn't know it was the end. I just kept going. But my legs have never been more on fire, and yet at the same time more exhausted in their lives. I never thought more about quitting and giving up. I was on the front of the line of the group, and I'm on the back of the line with my dad just trying to encourage me to keep going. And I was about to give up. Little did I know, I was only a few hundred feet away from the top. But you know what got me? It was a stray dog. You see, there was a stray dog that hung out around hike camp. It would go up and down the mountain with the different groups. And it followed us the whole day. And as I was hiking, turned out I was only a few hundred feet away, looked down, and there's that, you know how a dog, like, you know, it's walking, has like a little smile. I don't know if it's really smiling, but it looks like it's smiling. It's a panting, it's like, kind of like, just waddles up the mountain, and I'm like, if this dog's going to make it, I'm going to make it up this mountain. So I found this, like, inner strength in me to just keep going. And then right when I was about to just collapse, the, the guide goes, welcome to the top. And I was actually upset at him for some reason because I was just so tired and just delirious. But the point being is that I, had, I found my inner strength to keep going. Because on the mountain, I'm exposed. I'm just fighting for survival to get to the top. Now for a 21-day journey. I found the strength in me to do that. But here's the problem. 21 days isn't my whole life. 21 days is not 21 years. 21 days is not 60, 70 years. It's a short amount of time. We're sure we might be able to get to the top of our own strength. But if that was my life, just exposed to the mountainside, constantly going up and up and up, I would give up 10 out of 10 times, 100 out of 100 times, no matter how many stray dogs walk past me. I need a greater strength to keep going. And here's something, Christian. What I experienced on the summit day of Aconcagua is nothing compared to the labor that it is to walk with Christ. There is joy and freedom in it, but the bombardment from Satan is strong. And without Christ, we will lose 10 out of 10 times. Without Christ, we'll fail 10 out of 10 times. That's why we need to turn to the only one who defeated Satan, the one that who defeated death. We need to turn to Christ and his grace. Even when we're in our weakness, we turn to him. And in our weakness, when we turn to him, we can boast all the more, just like Paul told the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 12, it's like, in my weakness I boast because I'm not relying on myself. I'm relying on something greater than myself. I'm relying on God and his grace. So what is this favor? What is this 
favor that God gives us, that Jesus gives us to help us to persevere. Here, here's five quick things that Jesus gives us to help us persevere. First is forgiveness. His forgiveness. That is something that we need to really drill in our brains and our hearts. So I understand this. You're not in the counseling room. You're not saved. I can give you all the nice platitudes I want. I can give you all the nice biblical tricks I, can, I want, but it's not going to work because I'm talking to a dead person with a dead heart. You and I need a new heart in order to live for Christ. You know, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord, right? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 36, I will circumcise your heart. I will give you a new heart so that you can love me. So we need his forgiveness. We need to turn to God and say, I can't do this. Forgive me. I give up. Because if you don't start there, none of this is going to help. You will not persevere. You will give up. Because it really is going to show that your heart was never with God in the first place. So you need his forgiveness first. That's why he, John pens these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we sin, in our journey to live for God, to, to, to be trained and to train others, when we sin, we confess it, we seek forgiveness from God and others, and we repent and move forward. The second thing God gives us is his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that he'll give, a, give them another helper, with capital H, to be with them forever. The good news is when we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of God in us, so we can overcome the temptation of sin where we always failed. We can say no to our flesh and actually live a different new life that is actually free. That we can push through the hard days and the good days. And so when we ever feel weak, we're about to give up, our, our legs are about to collapse underneath us, and we are just trying to walk with Christ, we can remember, wait, I have God in me. I can keep going. I can keep moving forward because God is in me. That's the grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The next favor that God gives us, again, by the way, a grace is something that we don't deserve. Before I forget, grace is something that we receive that we don't deserve, like an inheritance. I don't deserve it. But the person was granted it. I don't deserve forgiveness, but I'm given it. I don't deserve the Holy Spirit. God says you can have it. I don't deserve his word. You understand that? I don't deserve to know that I'm a sinner. You understand? Because the way that you respond to that statement right there really shows if you're going to submit to the truth of God or not. Think about that. So I deserve to know. No, we don't. We deserve the, 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 act, the consequences for our actions, and that's it. But it's with the grace and favor of God. I say, no, I want to show mercy, so I'm going to show my mercy. I'm going to give you my word that will show you where you're at and where you need to get going. Because Psalm 119, 105 says, The word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. So whenever you feel confused about what to do, seek out the word of God. Don't say, I think. Say, what does God think? The, the fourth thing, it might sound a little weird, but bear with me. The fourth grace that he gives us is his ear. His ear. Now, what does that mean? He pops out his ear and throws it at us? No. What it means is that he listens. He listens. That's what we want in a conflict, right? We want the other person to be able to listen to us, to hear us, to understand why we're upset or why we're giving a defense. If my son ran into this room and yelled, Daddy, my two-year-old boy, I'm like, where is he at? 
Why? Because I love him. If you come up to me and say, Pastor Evan, I'm going to go, where are you at? Why? Because I love you. You're my sibling. Those are in Christ. You're my sibling, my brother and sister in Christ. And know that when God hears his children, he listens. His ear is with his children. And so that's why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 14, verse 16, Hebrews 4, 16. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can, we can, we can come into the throne room. Think about this. If, if we wanted to talk to Joe Biden and, and tell him off, guess what? We can't. We have to make an appointment and get our credentials. And the next president you want to meet, like, oh, you're great. Guess what? You can't. You got to go through some protocols and get some credentials. If you want to meet the king of England, you can't just barge in the throne room because you're not his family. But with the king of the universe, we as children can come, and yes, we need to come with reverence. We need to come with the right posture, even coming in in desperation. But we can go and come to knowing he's going to hear us and we can approach him. So whenever you feel frustrated and discouraged, Run confidently to prayer, knowing that God will hear you. And the final grace that Jesus gives us to help us persevere is this, his church. His church. The reason why you're here today, the reason why we are in life group, the reason why we get coffee, the reason why we serve together is this. Later, the same author in Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And at the end of verse 25, the more and more as we see the day, the capital D, the day of drawing near, the day of Jesus' return drawing near. The reason why you are here is for me to encourage you to say, keep going. Turn to God and keep going. And if you're not of God, turn to God and start going. And when you get in life, you'll be there to encourage one another to keep going. Or maybe you find out, you know what, I don't know this person saved. Hey, you need to get in and get going. That's the reason why we're here. That's why it's so important to be here, to be here on Sunday, to be with your life group, to be in your community, to make sure your kids are, see that, that modeled in your lives, to say, no, you, yes, you need to go to students. Yes, you need to go to kids. You might not be saved yet, but you need to see the benefit of what, when God's people get together, it, something amazing happens. Because if we don't, we'll be isolated and vulnerable and really willing to give up. And that's why in that same text, in verse 24, it says, Do not neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but instead to encourage one another. That's why as pastors, we will boldly say, You need to be here. You need to be in your life group. Why? Because you need to be encouraged. Isn't part of your life hard? Relationships difficult? No, we think, oh, we best just kind of pull away. We're like, yeah, that might seem logical, but it's illogical. Because the king of the year says, no, no, no. You get in and let my people help you move forward. And being part of God's family means we also need to follow the leaders that Jesus raises up. And that's where we get to verse, verse 2 of uh, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, back in our text. So you can go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul's first imperative was for, for Timothy to be strengthened. The second imperative is to entrust. It says, what you have heard from me, the, the, the testimony that I have preached, 
to many, the presence of many witnesses. So the, the teaching that I gave publicly that people have heard and confirmed that this is biblically true. You know, you might think, oh, is this Timothy's ordination? Excuse me, is this his ordination as a pastor? No, that's chapter 4 of cha- uh, 1 Timothy 1. So 1 Timothy, sorry, 1 Timothy 4, excuse me, is Timothy's ordination as a pastor. This is just Paul saying, hey, what you've heard from me as you've been discipled, as you've followed me, all the things I've taught, which is essentially the gospel of Christ and his teachings, you need to, right here, entrust. You need to carefully guard and carefully hand off this truth, these teachings to faithful men. It's one of my favorite times of year. It's football season. And you know, college football, people might like it more because of the more passionate, the youngsters running around, making plays. But essentially, football and really any ball sport is simply put down this. You take, take object and go to other end. That's it. So in football, you get odd object and you go to other end. As other people try to destroy you. That's what makes it fun. What I love about it, it's a great picture of that entrusting. Because if you're a fan of the team, or if you're a teammate, if you have a center who has the ball, you want that best center to hold that ball. And that quarterback, that's why people are like, oh, can Patrick Mahomes play for my team right now? And all the Chief fans are like, no. The quarterback, best quarterback right now, Patrick Mahomes, you want the best quarterback to take that ball and handle it with care. Not just to dangle it in front of him, but to hold it nice and tight. Maybe to hand it off to the running back, to throw it to the receiver. You want that person to hold on tight with two hands, high and tight. Why? Because the enemy, it's punching at him. It's trying to strip it out. It's trying to go for the head, even though they're not supposed to. They might go for the kneecaps. They might bludgeon you when you're on the pile. They might be you know, putting their fingers into your eyeballs so you can let go of the ball. True stories. <laughs> but that, that is the enemy's goal, and you would hope that you have the best and toughest people that are going to care for that ball to get it to the other side, to get it to its destination. In the same way, Paul is telling Timothy, you need to find the faithful men who are going to take this precious package, how to call the gospel, and not taint it, not twist it, but guard it carefully. As the enemy is trying to strip it out of their hands so that you as listeners will not hear the words of the Lord. Said, so you've got to hold on to it and find other faithful people to give it to them. Why? So that they too can teach it. So teach it to teach you to teach others. Because again, discipleship involves all of us. Even though here he's talking about the faithful men, yes, he's talking about the leaders of the, of the church, the pastor's elders. But really, this is also this job as, as parents to our children, husbands to our wives, neighbors to our neighbors. We need to entrust this thing, take care of it, and make sure we pass it well. This pattern of finding faithful people is nothing new. Moses, remember, he received the law from God himself. In Deuteronomy 31, he entrusted it to the priests to handle it with care, to go out to Israel and to teach Israel how to truthfully worship God. Even in God to Joshua, he's like, hey, you need to take care of what you're doing. Make sure you take care of the law. You need to meditate it on day and night. You need to focus on it and live carefully according to it. And even for the kings, the other leaders that God appoints in Deuteronomy 17 clearly talks about saying, as a king, you yourself are supposed to make a handwritten copy of the law and keep it near you. It needs to be examined by the priest to make sure it's dead on accurate. And then you need to hold on to it every single day and read it. Why? So that as you lead my people, you're leading them in truth and in purity. And so now that looks like now that the leaders that God has set up in his church, the elders slash pastors, they're synonymous words. Appointment is what the word we get 
pastor or shepherd is where we get the word pastor. Uh, uh, presbyteros is the word we get, well, also Presbyterian, but also presbyteros is the word we get elder. This is scribe in the same person. And so, guys, I'm finding faithful men to entrust this truth so that it's given to my people truthfully, accurately, and purely so my people can worship me. And then they, in turn, can teach others also. So from this point, from, the, from this text, I want to drive this second point, is to learn from faithful pastors. Learn from faithful pastors. And with that, it's not just faithful pastors. I mean, there's faithful pastors in California, there's faithful pastors in Africa and Asia, all over the world. And they might be, have access, you might have access to them, to so their sermons and their teachings, their books, and make sure they're faithful. Make sure that they take God's word and handle it with care and deliver it well. But the faithful pastors that Timothy, that Paul's talking about to Timothy is the men that are in the fold. It's your pastors who know you, who know your life group leaders, that care for you. As much as I, I love men like John MacArthur, he's not my pastor. Hayden's my pastor. And I'm going to learn from him. And I'm his pastor. And we're, we're your pastors. And we hope to raise up more pastors Faithful men that can be entrusted to say, we're going to take care of God's flock and nourish you. So the ones you might listen to online or the ones that are here, make sure they're faithful pastors. A faithful pastor lives out his job description. And if you want to study this later, I would highly recommend it. Here's three texts to show your pastor's job description. Uh, first te- text is 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 Timothy 4.2, later in this letter, Paul exhorts Timothy to what? Preach the word. In season, out of season. What does that look like? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. The second text is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. I love this text because all the different words that we're familiar hearing in in our church culture of, of overseer or even bishop or pastor or elder all comes in this text. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, essentially our job is to shepherd the flock. Peter says, I so exhort the elders, presbyteros among you, as a fellow presbyteros, elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd, poimen, the flock, this is where we get pastor, the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, um, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So faithful pastors are supposed to be a shepherd that's an example. That's one of you. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is the next job description of a pastor. He gave, God gave us the apostles and prophets, those who are codifying Scripture, that now we have scripture, that office is, is no longer. And the evangelist and shepherd teacher, evangelist is another way to say church planter, and shepherd teachers, which another way to say that is actually, it's one word, shepherd teacher, which is pastor. To what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we, for pastor, to equip y'all for the ministry of the church. Equip you guys for worship, tech, hospitality, food services, life group leadership serve team leadership, and prayerfully more and more pastors. And so it's our job to equip people so that you guys are no longer tossed to and fro, being caught by every wind of doctrine of someone said this, oh, they sound convincing, oh, this person sounds equally convincing, but they're saying different things. I know we need to teach you what is true and to equip you to not only 
live out the truth, but also to teach the truth to other people. And the end result being that we're unified together. We do this here in the pulpit. We do this in the counseling room. We do this in our own life group that we lead. We do this in our own family. But we're training y'all to live for Christ, training y'all to be able to teach others, training y'all to know how to lead others as best as we can. We're here to protect, to remove wolves, to correct wrong thinking. We're here to oversee, to make sure the church is going the right direction. Of course, by the guidance of our ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. So here are three quick applications for this to uh, learn from faithful pastors. One is to treasure the truth that is taught. Treasure it, to soak it on Sundays, in your life group, your application questions. If you go through our partners program, through partners, through your daily Bible reading, through our men's and women's ministry, through the next generation ministries of our students and kids, like soak it in. Take it like a sponge. Why? So that you can take it and deliver it to two places. So this is the, that was the first application. Here's the next two applications. We need to soak it, soak it and treasure it. And we need to bring the truth first to our family. Husbands to your wives, washing them with the word. Wives, helping your husband and encouraging them to lead well. Moms and dads, take it to your children. And your older children in here, your students, to take it to your younger siblings. Start with the family. Knowing that you are discipling your child to one day disciple their children. Think about that. If you have little kids or teenagers, your job is to train them up so they can be a husband that loves the Lord, a wife that loves the Lord, and then they can be parents that love the Lord, and then they can train up little souls to follow, to follow Jesus Christ. So we take it to our family. And next, we take it to the marketplace. We take this truth and we give it to the marketplace. You guys are in places that I will never have access to or never will be. Some of you are military. I can never get into your base. Some of you are policemen, firefighters, first responders. I can never be in your situation. I don't have the time. I'm not God. I can't be everywhere at once. Parents, you have children that I will never be able to really be hands-on to disciple. You're in offices in San Antonio and Austin and everyone in between. Or driving hours away. I can never be in those places, but you are. You need to take this truth that's being communicated to you by God through the preaching of his word in, from scripture. Say, I need to give it. I need to teach others. But the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the things that we offer as leaders to kind of help you do that. We have your Sunday worksheet. Where Pastor Hayden talked about to take notes so you can remember what to say later this week to the people you need to say it to. That's why we have our midweek teachings and discussion groups our life groups, our community, so that we can encourage one another and be praying for them so that you can reach out to those people. That's why we have men's teachings that are specific to men and women's teachings specific to women so that you guys can apply those accordingly. That's why we have a bookstore so that you have books and resources that help you understand some of the tough things of Scripture. That's why we offer things like Bible survey for kids to, so that you as parents can teach your kids the, a, a survey of all the books of the Bible. That's why we have a Generations of Grace home devotionals. Your kids are learning things. And the good news is you know exactly what they're learning because there's a devotional that goes through the same teaching that you can then take to your own kids and say, let's talk about this more. So I can entrust this good news to you to take to your children and your children that I will never meet or potentially never meet. And this culminates eventually to like, what happens when we all do this? It culminates eventually to us raising up people to be sent off to plant a church. 
We need to be, we need to participate in this together so that we can train other people up, people up to, to go out. And this is where we're going to wrap up in verse 3 of chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. So as we're turning to Christ for the strength to persevere, as we're learning from our leaders because we are at war. Remember, don't forget, we are at war. Satan, even right now, is trying to bombard your mind. He's trying to tempt you even right now. And so we need to follow your leaders. You need to trust in Christ to give you strength to do what specifically? Verse 3, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The suffering to make disciples. It's hard work. It's messy work. It can be work that might blow up in your face. It might be work that's super enjoyable or absolutely devastating. It can be the most wonderful thing to experience and the hardest thing to experience at the same time. You'll be able to see people mature in Christ, and you'll experience people who wound you that are of Christ. It's a lifelong, arduous, labor-intensive battle that demands our full attention and it demands our dedication. And so for point number three is we need to prioritize our participation to make disciples. We need to prioritize our participation to make disciples. We prioritize what we deem valuable. Some of us will tell people, this is what I find valuable. Soon in a few weeks, we'll say, this is my New Year's resolution. But then, really, our friends and family go, we'll see. Because unfortunately, the statistics are not helpful. About roughly 80 to 90% of New Year's resolutions fail by February, which that didn't last long. And we say, this is what I find valuable, a healthier body, a better budget, a, a cleaner home. And after a few months, we like, and not really. Because the, the sacrifice required to do those things is greater than the enjoyment that I like to have. Many of us say, you know what? I find church valuable. I, see, I love God. I love his church. I love life group. I love evangelism. I love discipling. But then we take a look at your calendar and it's filled with anything but that. It's already filled up. So, oh, I forgot this. And I, I filled it with this. And Oh, here, here's the, oh, excuse me, I can't do this. We love the idea, are we willing to sacrifice what is required to share in the suffering of making disciples? Are we willing to sacrifice to prioritize making disciples? Because it is possible, by the way. I mean, Paul, even in prison, was excited about the gospel, was excited about discipleship, and even penned these words. Like, how does he in, in prison, in a Roman prison, which is like, he's in a hole, I mean, no windows, just a little window looking up, and that's his only way out, and there's guards, so there's no way of escape. He's sitting there, and yet he's joyful for the gospel. Why? Because he says, you know, I forget what lies behind. I forget my old life. I forget my sin, and I strive forward to what lies ahead. I forget even the pain I experience when I try to disciple so-and-so, and it's okay. I'm going to move forward because I'm pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I'm focused on eternity. I'm not focusing on this home that I have. I'm focusing on the home that I'm going to be in for eternity. But we need to live 
in a certain manner. But before we get there, there's a few, there's three areas in our lives that I, I want, I think, to be good for us, including myself, to really assess. We need to bring out our cat. C is for calendar. We need to look at our calendar and go, is it filled with people that I'm trying to disciple or that are trying to disciple me? I need to look at my agenda. When I'm meeting with these people, are we just only talking about college football? Are we only talking about the weather? Are we actually having an agenda to go, hey, this is what God says. This is where I need help. This is where I've sinned. This is where I need to repent. This is where I need to go. And then we need to assess our trajectory. Calendar, agenda, trajectory. We need to make sure, am I going the right direction? Am I going in a direction that God is leading me toward the celestial city to eternity? To help us, God, well, to help us, and really Paul helping Timothy, he gives him three examples and one last imperative. How to help him in his participation to make disciples. Uh, the first example he gives us is the soldier. The soldier. You know, verse 3 starts off with the soldier, sharing the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, reminding us, okay, we are at war. And if you haven't done discipleship, if you have not met someone for coffee to help them, you know, to take away sinful habits and to put on righteous ones, you understand it's a, it's a fight. It is war. Because people are, we, we want to hold on to our little idols and desires and we don't want people prying them off. We might lash out. We might be hostile. That's the, that's the part of discipleship. But yet we, like a soldier, need a focus. Because, verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier in a firefight who is at war isn't necessarily concerned about what color flowers he has in his garden. He's like, all right, is my home taken care of? Great. I am in a firefight. I need to survive and win. And thankfully, I have a command, hopefully, they have a good commanding officer to listen to, knowing that this commanding officer is going to help us not only survive, but win. So I'm going to listen to his orders, even though it's crazy outside. So, like a good soldier, we're not allowing our civilian, the civilian life, the things of this world, to pull us away from fulfilling the mission of making disciples. Now, there's a swing, like, well, then I don't need a home, I don't need a good budget, I need to focus only on the gospel. Well, here's the thing. You know, you, can, you take care of your home for what reason? To demonstrate to the world what it looks like to uh, show dominance over to, over to the world, as the commandment was in Genesis 1, to have dominion over the world, but also, too, you want to have a clean house so you can have people come over to, for discipleship, right? Maybe to host your life group or a fellowship. You can't have a messy home, so you need to clean your room. You need to clean your room. <laughs> Parents, take that to your students. <laughs> but also, budgets. You know, I, I need to have a good budget. I need to make sure that I have money, I, that I'm not spending more money than I have. I try my best. Not to, if I'm in debt, I do my best to get out of it. Why? So that this isn't just consuming my life so I can focus on discipling my children and discipling others in my church and discipling others. Being entangled means your, your whole focus is only on something else. Instead of showing dominance over everything else, showing dominion over everything else for the purpose of glorifying God by discipling others. And so, when doing so, how, how are we motivated? By pleasing the one who enlisted us. Having a, a good commanding officer that we know if I follow his instructions, I will live. And furthermore, I will be victorious if I just follow his orders. I just want to please him. And that's the, the first sub-point there in your worksheet. A, always aim to please Jesus. If you want to be a good soldier, you need to aim your commanding officer who is Jesus Christ. 
Because remember the war that we're at. What I love is that it seems like 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy are almost seem a little bit related. Because that same war language is used in 2 Corinthians 10. So we are waging war according, not according to the flesh, but against the Spirit. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the war that we're at. And so what we need to do earlier is 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 is a verse that you should memorize, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So as we are at war, I need to make sure that I'm home or away, I make it my aim to please Jesus. So here's a couple things you can do. One, ask this question. Okay, what exactly is pulling me away from making disciples? What exactly is pulling me away from making disciples? Ask God, have God reveal it to you. Say, what is pulling me away? And then secondly, bring it to your life group and bring it to your life group leader so that they can help you stay focused on the battle at hand and not be distracted. So we need to ask and bring it to our life group. And we'll avoid the warning that Paul says later in 2 Timothy 4 for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me. We need to take care of what we are concerned about. Otherwise, we will desert our church family and desert, desert Christ. The second illustration, as we move quickly, is found in verse 5 with the athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Commentators have pointed out there's three main rules and context in, in mind. First rule in the Greek games that Paul's referring to, it doesn't matter if it's in Athens, in Corinth, or Thessalonica, it's that first rule, they have to be a naturally born Greek. You know, that's the only way you can compete. Are you a naturally born Greek? You got to be able to prove it. Next is you have to dedicate 10 months of training before the event. You have to dedicate 10 months, so most of the year, to training. Otherwise, like, we don't want to waste our time of watching you, and you shouldn't waste your time of competing if you didn't train for it. And the third rule is essentially play by the event's rules. And they stand before Zeus and say, yes, I affirm, I am an actually born Greek, and I have dedicated my life to this. Otherwise, they found out they weren't. They are were severely punished and even maybe killed. Essentially, what Paul's saying with this extreme example is that Paul needs to be as disciplined like an athlete. Just study some of what our professional athletes in our country do for their sport. Might be the over-the-top ridiculous. But at the same time, they're disciplined to say no to the comforts that they want, to say no to the things that they want to enjoy, and say yes to, I want to do this, is okay. I get it. And that's the example that Paul's saying, see their discipline and use it for the Lord. Jesus has given us specific instructions, and so we should be disciplined to say no to ourselves and no to our ideas, instead saying, yes, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Yes, sir, what do you want me to do? And that's our second thing. Always follow Jesus' direction. Always follow Jesus' direction. There are several times where young men or gals, knowing that I played college football and pursued the NFL, I say, hey, how, how can I make it? And I share with them the sacrifice, the hard work and dedication commitment involved in order to just play Division I sports. Most of them, if not all of them, walk away. They're not willing to pay the price to achieve the goal of being a D1 athlete. Jesus demands a dedication. No, he don't earn salvation, but he still demands dedication, especially since the fact that he bought us with his blood. 
Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. It's more than just giving up our bonbons and cookies. He's saying you need to give up your life. Not only just your life, but everything in it. Luke 14, 33. Luke 14, 33. If anyone does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. That's why mental assenting to the facts is not what Jesus means. Okay, you need to acknowledge the facts and let the facts lead you to the right response, which is you need to give up everything to follow Jesus. Because our hearts will reveal if we really do love Jesus. So, the thing we need to ask here is, what desire, what desire is ruling me and hindering me from being more effective to be discipled and to disciple? What desire is ruling over me that controls me? Finances, it could be eating, it could be sleep, it can be video games, whatever it is. What specifically is ruling you that's pulling you away from discipling? And then bring it to your life group and life group leaders so they can help you be a more effective disciple maker and a disciple-er. The third example is found in verse 6. The farmer is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. When you underline hardworking, that word in the Greek, in the dictionary, is described as this. It's the weary farmer, the fatigued farmer, the physically and emotionally exhausted farmer. Now, I know some of y'all have farmed or are farmers. I'm a little suburban South Orange County kid who only grew strawberries once. So I really don't know about farming. I know how to grow strawberries. And that was hard enough. I can imagine acres and acres of field. The farmer, unlike the athlete, doesn't have an amazing competition to compete at. The, the, the euphoria of competition. The farmer doesn't have that adrenaline of trying to survive a battle. The farmer, day in, day out, Texas scorching heat, you know, Kansas freezing winter. He's out there working that ground, watering those plants, tilling, working, year after year, decade after decade, in hopes that the crops grow. And the farmers that work the hardest, the most diligent, the most consistent are the ones that enjoy the crops. If you want to enjoy the harvest that is Christ and to enjoy seeing people saved and to see people matured in Christ, as those who say, I want to put in the dedication, the work, the commitment, the consistency to say, I'm going to keep going, rain or shine. Even my hands are blistering or not, I'm going to keep going. Even if I was wounded by a friend of mine, I'm going to keep going. Because I'm not doing it for my harvest, I'm doing it for Jesus' harvest. And that's, number th- that's letter C. Always work hard for Jesus' harvest. Remember, it's Jesus' harvest. It's Jesus' Jesus's harvest that he says you need to pray for more harvesters, as he said in Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for more harvesters. Are we praying for people to be more harvesters? Are we praying for people in our life group to be better harvesters? Are we praying for us to have the ability to train and disciple them to be better harvesters? Are we praying to be better trained to be a better harvester? Because this is played out, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. It's like I planted, I, Paul, planted. Apollos, another pastor, he watered. But God gave the growth. Thankfully, we can give the crops to the Lord because it's his harvest. But he expects us to work 
Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. God is using us to till that ground. God is using us to plant that seed. God is using us to water, to disciple. Who knows when that person will repent? Who knows when that person will mature? But God's saying just keep going like a hardworking farmer. So what we need to ask is, with whom specifically do I need to labor harder for the harvest? Whom specifically do I need to labor harder for the hardest? Is it my kids? Is it my spouse? Is it extended family? Is it my coworkers or neighbors or the random stranger I met at the coffee shop? Who do I need to labor harder for? And then I should bring into my life group and life group leaders so that they can labor with me for the long haul. They can pray for me for the long haul. Finally, the imperative that Paul gives to Timothy is to think things over. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. We need to consider this. We need to meditate on this. We need to seriously consider what Paul said, knowing that God will give us understanding. What does everything mean? Everything means it's everything that Paul just talked about when sharing the suffering, sharing in the suffering to make disciples. So we think about the soldier, the farmer, and the athlete. We think about that. We're going to understand what it means to make disciples. As someone said in my life group, we're not, we're not salesmen. We're sowers. Sowers, it takes long, concerted effort over time. Salesmen, we just try to get it done as quickly as possible. Sowers, like, nope, I'm going to keep going. Oh, that didn't go well. Keep going. I got struck my lightning. Nope, I'm going to keep going. A wolf attacked me. Nope, I'm going to keep going. But it's not our wisdom that we turn to, it's, it's Jesus' wisdom. And that's our final thing. We always seek Jesus' wisdom. Always seek Jesus' wisdom. I will proud, you know, proudly say that when I'm, you know, my, my mother bought us a, a little crib for a little girl that's on the way, I will bust that instructions open, I'll read it a few times. I'm not that guy that goes, I'll figure it out. I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I don't know how a crib is made. I only have one kid, and I'm having two, all right? I did, I did this once, but I might, I might need a refresher a little bit. I'm going to follow those instructions because I don't want to mess up. I don't want to have to go back and go, oh, I do that again. I shouldn't have done it my way. I should have followed the one who designed and created and said, here's the instructions. Just like in our discipleship, we should follow the one who created us, who designed us, who gave us instructions in his word to say, this is how you disciple. And so what we need to do is we need to ask, you know what, where specifically am I relying on my own wit, my own smarts, and my own strength to disciple this person? Where am I relying on myself? And then bring it to my life group and life group leaders so, you can help, so they can help me follow God's way so that I do not stumble. So I can be reminded a quick text to write down. This is something you need to plaster somewhere in your home everywhere, like every room maybe. Proverbs 3, 5. So Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Good news is your kids sing it consistently here at kids' ministry. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. Simply put, don't turn to you, turn to God. Because if you do that, they'll help you participate a lot more effectively without bumping, bumping into the speed bumps that maybe we didn't see coming, even though God said it's coming. So as we wrap up our series on training, we have to understand that as we reach people, as we teach people, we're about to entrust people. We have a precious gospel that we're holding on to and protecting. 
So it's taught well and taught accurately and giving it to another. Say, no, you go make disciples and keep this thing pure. Tim Givens. I bet many, if not all of you, do not know who that person is. Tim Givens. He was a pastor in Long Beach who discipled someone. And eventually that someone became a pastor too. And that pastor is named Mike Fabares. Some of you, many of you know who that is. That's our, the lead pastor of our sending church. We're, by the way, if you're new here, we are a two-year-old church plant that was sent from South Orange County, California, sent by Pastor Mike and the other pastor elders there, Doug, Lucas, Rod, John, men they might not know. Some of you may. And they, Tim, entrusted to, to Mike, and Mike entrusted to Hayden, and we, hopefully under Hayden's leadership, will entrust to another that hopefully is raised up and then that person will entrust it to another who will raise up and then trust it to another, just like it's been going on ever since really the beginning, especially the beginning of the church. Our training, the vision of our training, where are we going in our training? Where are we going in our reaching, our teaching and training? We're here to plant this church, but now we are moving from planting to being planted. And now we're about to say, we know we're going to bear some fruit and send out this seed and to send out a team to go plant. Someone asked Pastor Hayden and I, what's your 10-year vision for this church? And quickly we said, plant a church. In the way that we do plant churches here where you know, we are sending church, they raised up two pastors, my, Pastor Hayden and myself. They sent out about 70 people. They said, you know what, we're going to make sure that you guys are paid for and that, you know what, you make sure you have a place. So you don't have to worry about the finances. Make sure, make sure that the giving is consistent so then eventually you can take over but the building that you're in, look around. Our church didn't pay for it. Another church did. Because, you know, we entrust you with this precious gospel to get in here to a growing area and to reach the nations and the, and the generations that come to say, go plant more churches. Entrust it, guard it, and raise up people to send out. Raise up other pastors and elders, pastor elders to send out. Raise up a team that can be sent out. We're not there yet. And in our model, it takes about seven to ten years for that to happen. Our first, the first church plant of the setting church is about to now to plant another church, which is exciting. And so it's our turn, church, to think through this. We've been planted to go plant. Yeah, we're going to plant to the nations, but we have a lot of the nations are coming to Texas. New Braunfels is right now, according to one census, 115,000 people. And that's a growth rate from 2020 of 26%. It's just going to continue to grow. And in some estimates of a high, this is the same high here, in 10 years, New Braunfels can have a quarter of a million people. That's not the surrounding area. That's just New Braunfels. And maybe another 10 years might be another half, another, uh, it could be half a million, let alone San Antonio and Texas. Now, we don't run from it. Nobody knows, okay, there's nations coming. Let's go disciple them. There's the thing called the Texas Triangle. I'm going to paint a vision for you guys. The San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, and that triangle, in the, in the cities and everywhere in between, there's over 22 million people. That's the fourth largest, you know, mega metropolis in the country. The unique thing is that it's one of the few, if not only, mega metropolises that's in one state. Because Texas is huge, if you did not know that. In 10 years, the forecasting that's going to be 30 million. It'll surpass California. And furthermore, they're estimating 2040 that Texas will pass California as the most populous state in the country. Texas 
The nations are coming to Texas, and we have a job to reach them, to teach them, and train more people to reach them, and to teach them, and to train others to send out to reach, teach, and train. It is our job as a church. So let's prioritize the hard labor of discipleship so that we can faithfully entrust another church plan to entrust our children and their children's children with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ so they can give it to the nations and to the generations to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning and this encouraging text, Lord, for us to take what was given by others who they faithfully gave to others, which eventually led to us here in New Braunfels, Texas in 2023. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to be trained so that, Lord, we can train others, so that, Lord, we can entrust them with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, so that at the end of our lives specifically, we, like Paul, can say, I've, won, I've ran the race, I've finished, and now I'm giving it to you. So God, help us to be ready to, to be trained and to train so that, Lord, we can see you glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.